Hello and welcome to the second part of the New Arab Voices Arab Spring Special, a two-part episode looking at the protest movement that shook the Middle East and North Africa forever. Ten years ago, Tunisian food vendor Mohamed Bouazizi immolated himself after enduring harassment from police officers. His suicide triggered a wave of anti-government demonstrations across the Arab world. In part one, we examine the legacy of the Arab Spring in its birthplace Tunisia, as well as neighboring Libya. For the second part, we will look at the uprisings in Egypt, Yemen, and Syria with the help of our guests who watched it all unfold. I know this is the first Arab revolution of the 21st century, or it will be brutally suppressed. Tense new beginnings for Tunisia, its Arab neighbors nervous of how revolutionary feelings could spread. Mubarak deposed. Egypt's 18-day revolution defies all expectation. Even though Hosni Mubarak had ruled Egypt for almost three decades, he was the second leader to be toppled with the uprisings in 2011. Millions gathered on January 25th, the annual police holiday, in protest of Mubarak's violent state surveillance, increasing police brutality and worsening economic situation. Security forces and protesters clashed. Tear gas engulfed the streets. Most remained peaceful while others looted. Neighborhoods created watch groups to keep their residents safe. But 846 people died, while as many as 6,000 suffered injuries. The revolution lasted only 18 days before Mubarak resigned on February 11th, and Egyptians finally breathed a short sigh of relief. Social media, mainly Twitter, was one of the main weapons activists all across the region were using to help each other and alert the international community of the abuses and hardships they were facing. It was one of the only sources of accountability and transparency, especially in states which didn't have free and impartial media outlets. Hossam al-Hamalawi went from being a student activist to a central player in reporting the events on the ground, even when the internet and the electricity were shut off by the regime. The, uh, the Egyptian regime decided to cut down telecommunications uh, and the internet in anticipation of the Friday of Anger. So my role was to try to get as many images and as many videos and as many news and updates to the international media and to our local also circles in Egypt. All throughout, probably till 2014, uh, not just like the 18 days, um, I was living off coffee and cigarettes and I was getting... um, not much sleep at all. Um, Sometimes I would stay awake for 72 hours and then like just drop dead, you know, for like 12 hours and try to sleep and then come back. And I would stay for, you know, two days in the row, just awake. My my physical and mental health in general were definitely um, in a very bad situation. And and this, I mean, continued for uh, for a few years, uh, not just throughout the 18 days. During his days of student activism, Hassan became all too familiar with the dictatorship's iron fist. And this ended up further radicalizing him against the regime and cementing his place in the resistance. 
I was already a student activist. I joined the Egyptian Revolutionary Socialists by the end of the 1990s. I was mobilizing uh, over all sorts of issues in my university campus. And in the year 2000, uh, I was, uh, this was my first arrest. I was kidnapped by state security police and I was tortured in their headquarters for roughly four days. And this was the beginning of a number of arrests that happened uh, later. I was denied jobs in the academic sector because of my security file. Because before taking such uh, any teaching position, you had to have security clearance under Mubarak's regime. So I went into journalism. I covered human rights-related uh, uh, news, meaning police torture in specific. Later, I launched my blog that was called Arabawi from in the year 2006. And together with a number of uh, other Egyptian bloggers, we helped to shed some light on the pandemic of police torture in Egypt. Hassam had followed and studied closely the Mubarak regime's tactic of suppressing its own people for years. He described aspects of Mubarak's rule as resembling those of the former Soviet Union, with the state controlling every aspect of life in Egypt. So, before the Arab Spring, Egyptians had already been suffering the impact of this autocratic rule and had begun to stand up against it. Unlike Egypt's middle class, workers had much more to lose if they were to join the protests. But in December 2006, almost every single textile mill in Egypt went on strike, which triggered all other sectors besides the police and the army to join them. This would sow the seeds for his ousting five years later by the whole population. And then another tragedy worsened the relationship between the people and the regime, when Khaled Said, aged 28, was brutally murdered by Egyptian police in 2010. Online, his death was shared across different platforms that reached the whole country, with many writing, we are all Khaled Said. The explosion that happened in January uh, was not necessarily um, due to a Facebook event or a Facebook page. And it wasn't solely because of um, the, uh, the tragic uh, murder of Khalid Saeed in 2010, or solely inspired by the domino effect of the Tunisian revolution. In order for a revolution to happen, it has to be preceded by a long process uh, where dissent and, um, and anger are accumulating. Uh, within the people. It's when definitely, uh, or, or when it's for sure, the, um, the ruling elite cannot continue in the old ways that they are used to. And the people have gained the enough courage and confidence to step forward and confront uh, the powers of the state that has been repressing them for so long. So once Tunisia ousted Ben Ali in just 11 days, this growing discontent triggered Egyptians to join their North African brothers and sisters in starting a protest movement that would finally get rid of the Mubarak regime once and for all. On the morning of January 25th, I remember I was asked by one of the pundits, I think on Twitter, whether I was expecting a revolution. And my answer was skeptic, actually. For years, I dreamt and I worked for this prospect to happen one day. And even when only like two or three months before it, uh, I wrote on my blog saying that we're heading for a revolution. 
But by the night of the January 25th, after seeing all of these mass protests, which we did not expect, uh, remember that the, the ceiling of the demands on the January 25th, when it started, was simply the impeachment of Habib al-Adli, who was the interior minister, and holding the police torturers uh, accountable. We were not really demanding regime change in the beginning. But by night, everything changed. The, uh, the Friday of anger, January 28, uh, 2011, that day which I consider to be the most glorious day in the history of Egypt, uh, the Egyptians flocked to the squares um, and in their neighborhoods everywhere, from Alexandria to Aswan, uh, burning police stations, which were torture centers. These are not police stations. These were places where Egyptians were treated as a cattle. So Egyptians were burning police stations, were burning these torture centers, were confronting the central security forces uh, uh, everywhere. And we've managed to beat back the police. And that's when I, I started believing that we will see the imminent uh, collapse of Hosni Mubarak. Mubarak was eventually jailed for life in 2012 for conspiring to murder protesters, but was later acquitted. He died in February of this year, but his legacy of military autocracy continues. In 2013, the former general Abdel Fattah al-Sisi seized power with a military coup that ousted Egypt's only democratically elected government, headed by Mohamed Morsi. More than 60,000 political prisoners have been incarcerated since LCC's power grab in 2013, and state surveillance has been increased, whereby so much more of the Egyptian population now works or is linked to the army in some way. Hassam has been forced to move away from his beloved Egypt because of the ensuing crackdowns on members of civil society like himself. He's now living in Germany, where he's completing his PhD in Egypt's war on terror. He says that unlike some of his fellow revolutionaries who partook in the protests in 2011, he doesn't regret sacrificing and risking his life during those years. I am still um, an active member of the opposition, even if I had to leave the country. I do not have any regrets about the revolution because I know that some people, they have regrets and they say, if time goes back, you know, we wouldn't have done it, blah, blah, blah. But I do not have any regrets. And whoever tells me that if time goes back, I would not have protested, I would have told them, okay, I mean, that's your own personal choice and you're free to do whatever you like. But whether you like it or not, the people would have still revolted. The January revolution did not happen because Hussam was uh, inciting for it or because X and Y were agitating for it. It's the Egyptian people's revolution and the Egyptian people are the ones who exploded in such social and political explosion after an entire decade of dissent and anger piling up. Ten years on, Egyptians are facing another repressive regime that many say is worse than Mubarak's. All their sacrifices may seem to have been carried out in vain, but Hassan believes this is only the beginning for Egypt's road to democracy. Uh, the revolution in 2011 broke out because of a number of reasons. These reasons uh, were related to the regime's practices and policies. They were structural problems in the state. And what the counter-revolution did uh, following 2013 was simply deepening those problems even more. They did not provide solutions for it. 
these problems could be summed up by um, our slogan uh, in Tahrir, Aish Hurriya Adal Aktimaya, Bread, Freedom, and Social Justice. So there will be another revolt in the future, but unfortunately, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And the only advice that I can give to anyone is to strategize for the long term. Uh, do not expect that with every trending hashtag on any specific day that calls for a revolt, that the regime will be uh, overthrown immediately. Part of how this regime will be overthrown is the fact that uh, we have to revive street politics once again, and we have to revive the revolutionary and the political organizations that can sustain mobilizations. Hassam's story reflects that of millions who had the courage to stand up to their oppressive regimes in the Middle East and North Africa. This revolutionary spirit was incited across the region and its power relied on the diversity of those who attended. Men, boys, rich, poor joined together and with them came a wave of women fighting for their own stakes in the resistance. I just wanted to warn our listeners that this portion of the podcast contains references to sexual assault that could be triggering for some. One of these women who joined the protests in 2011 was Mona El-Tahawi, a powerhouse of a woman who has been on the forefront of women's rights campaigns in the Middle East and elsewhere. My name is Mona El-Tahawi. And my pronouns are she, her, hers. And my declaration of faith with which I begin everything is the patriarchy. Mona is a freelance Egyptian-American journalist and has written essays and op-eds for publications worldwide on Egypt and the Islamic world, including women's issues. She wrote Headscarves and Hymens, her first book published in 2015, and The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, published last year. She's also acknowledged as one of the people who spearheaded the Mosque Me Too movement, a Muslim women movement where female pilgrims speak about the sexual abuse experienced on the Hajj, the Islamic pilgrimage to one of Islam's holiest places, Mecca in Saudi Arabia. Even though she was living abroad at the time, when she saw the situation heating up in Egypt in 2011, she couldn't bear to be away from Cairo and put everything in her life on hold to be there. Her time in Cairo was not child play. Her and her fellow protesters were putting their well-being and lives at risk. Upon her arrival, Mona attended a protest at Mohammed Mahmoud Street, an infamous battleground for protesters because it was located just off Tahrir Square and led to the Interior Ministry. I met this friend of mine about a day or two after I, I arrived in Cairo and with him I went to Muhammad Mahmoud because the courage in Muhammad Mahmoud was like a magnet to me. I had to go. It was very, very violent because of the police and the military. There were snipers on the roof that were targeting protesters. Several young men were shot deliberately in the eye. So my friend and I were walking to Muhammad Mahmoud. It was blocked off on one end. So we found a side entrance. And just before we went in, I will never forget that there was a row of men on their scooters. And these men had kefayas around their face because the amount of tear gas that the regime was using on Mohammed Mahmoud was enough to suffocate you. And we know how dangerous tear gas is now. And these men, they were volunteers who had come 
to act basically as a mini ambulance on their scooter. And they, would, they had a row of them and they would just drive into Muhammad Mahmoud as soon as they saw someone who had fainted either from the tear gas or had been shot, they would put them on the back of their scooter or their motorcycle and they would drive out and take them to the field hospital in Tahrir Square. I will forever remember these men. I call them the angels of Muhammad Mahmoud because that's what they were like. They were incredible. It gives me, gives me goosebumps to remember these men. Those angels on the motorbike will forever remind me how the revolution in Egypt belongs to us all. These were not activists. These were not members of a political party. These were individuals who were called to service for the liberation of Egypt. And it, was, it, it, it gives me goosebumps to remember these men. The brutality with which protesters were treated plagued the 2011 protests in Egypt. The eye patch even became a prominent symbol of the resistance since the Mohammed Mahmoud clashes erupted, as snipers and police were said to have been targeting protesters' eyes. Both her and her friend got encircled by security forces who started beating them. But for Mona, this was a moment where she truly saw the monster that hides amidst the patriarchy. This is Mona's interview with CNN later that year. Well, right now I have my broke. Uh, my left arm is broken and my right hand is broken, and this is as a result of a brutal beating by the Egyptian riot police, who surrounded me. I was um, taking pictures and I was covering events on the front line between the confrontation between protesters and the police and the military, and a group of riot police surrounded me. About five of them beat me, kind of rained their, their, their big sticks down upon my arms, and that's why they're broken, because I was trying to protect myself. And they also sexually assaulted me. I was groped all over my body. There was lost count of the number of hands that tried to get into my trousers. They dragged me to the Minister of the Interior with my hair, called me, dragged me by the hair, rather, called me all kinds of insults. And this all happened in about seven or eight minutes, So, and that was kind of the, the, the crescendo of it all. But then I ended up spending between 10 to 12 hours in detention, first by the Ministry of the Interior, and then second by military intelligence. So it was, it was an awful night, and, but what happened to me is just a taste of what happens to so many Egyptians. Witnessing fellow protesters get hurt and killed like this, and coming to terms with having been subjected to sexual assault herself, Mona's participation in the protests changed her life forever. Women at Tahrir Square were at risk of being violated differently than their male peers, especially under Egypt's regime, which punishes women for stepping out of line. Uh, less than a month after Hosni Mubarak had, was forced to step down because of January the 25th, the military junta, which were 19 generals who took over to take care of the revolution, as if a military anyway takes care of the revolution, these fascist fucks, you know, they decided... It was over and everyone had to go home now. They went to Tahrir Square and there were some activists who were determined not to leave Tahrir Square until more of our demands were met, you know, and they were right. No one should have left Tahrir Square, no one. So a group of really incredibly brave and courageous and tenacious revolutionaries remained in Tahrir Square and the military, the junta, decided, no, you all have to go home now. The revolution is finished. And they sent soldiers in who cleared Tahrir Square and they arrested activists. At first, they took them to the Egyptian museum and they tortured them and then took them to a military prison where they continued to torture them. And at 
the military prison, they ordered the women to form two lines, one line for married women and one line for unmarried women. And they said, make sure that you join the right line because we're going to subject the unmarried women to quote unquote virginity tests to determine whether you're really unmarried. Now at the heart of all of this, of course, is this fucked up concept of virginity and how you lose your hymen when you lose your virginity. And you can only lose your virginity when you have sex and you can only have sex when you're married. And the military basically raped, sexually assaulted Egyptian female revolutionaries under the guise of protecting the military from being accused of sexual assault. Because when the military was asked, was pushed about this, um, these violations, a couple of months later, they said this was so that no one could accuse us of raping them. And the unsaid here is that only a virgin can be raped. It's so horrendous on so many levels. But the fact that this happened to female revolutionaries less than a month after the revolution pushed our dictator of 30 years to step down, for me, was the red line. This, I wrote a column for The Guardian, an opinion piece for The Guardian newspaper in June of 2011, in which I said, these so-called virginity tests will inspire a new revolution. Because, you know, here's feminist Mona thinking, fuck this shit, are you kidding me? What revolution worth its salt sees its revolution is being assaulted like this and doesn't do anything about it? And you know what? No one did anything about it, except for a small group of activists who uh, filmed testimonies, video testimonies of the women who were courageous enough to come out and say, this happened to me. I, I'm, I'm still enraged when I tell you about this. People were writing to me saying, hey, Mona, why are you so outraged? Don't you know that Egyptian families subject their daughters to virginity tests anyway? So the family subjects you to sexual assault through a virginity test. The regime subjects you to a sexual assault through a virginity test. Same, same. And this is where patriarchy comes in. The involvement of women in Egypt's political life is not new. Ever since the start of the protests against Mubarak, women became part of the resistance, facing brutal repression from the regime. In 2005, during that year of great political flourishing in Egypt, as I mentioned earlier, the Mubarak regime began more publicly than at any time in its, you know, in its history to use systemic, systematic sexual assault against women to use it against women, uh, female journalists and female activists. And this was especially so it, during the Kefaya protests. And in, in May of 2005, when Egypt held a referendum about the way that we elect our president, female journalists and activists were targeted and for sexual assault by police in uniform and thugs who were working for the police out of uniform. And there was a massive protest by, well, there was a small protest because protests back then weren't so massive. And women very courageously held up the clothes that were ripped off their bodies to show what had happened. And they posted videos and pictures of the assaults that they were subjected to online. And several of them went on satellite television in Egypt, which was a historic moment because I, I remember my relatives telling me they'd never seen anything in their lives and this movement began called The Street is Ours, where women began to go to protest more and more visibly because what the Mubarak regime was doing was they were using sexual assault to terrify women, but this is more important now, or, or just as important rather. They were using women's bodies as proxy battlefields between the regime and their families and, and male activists because what the regime was doing was it was sending a signal to their family, their father, their patriarch, 
If you don't keep your women at home, we're going to rape and sexually assault, assault them. And so for those women to go on satellite TV and say, this happened to me, and they were not ashamed to say it, was revolutionary in and of itself. And I interviewed a young woman at the time who said to me, this was her moment of politicization. She said to me, in 2005, when I saw those women exposing what the Mubarak regime did to them, I, I sat there and I thought, you know what? I don't control anything in my life. My parents tell me what to study at university. My parents tell me who to marry. My boss at work tells me I can't go out to join a protest. I don't own my own body. I don't own my life. What the fuck do I own? If even the one thing that, that I'm supposed to own, my body, the regime sexually assaults. And she said she started joining protests then because that was her moment of politicization. So the Mubarak regime used sexual, systematic sexual violence in 2005. Systematic sexual violence was used against women in 2011. I was sexually assaulted, not just had my arms broken. And a feminist group in Egypt told me at least 12 women in the protests that I joined and in which I was assaulted, they were also sexually assaulted in an identical manner in the way that I was. But none of these 12 women have, been able, have wanted to speak either because their family silenced them or they were too ashamed to speak. And then you'll remember the iconic picture of the woman being dragged through Tahrir Square in December, where she was stripped down to her blue bra and soldiers were stomping on her chest. To this day, we don't know her name because her family is ashamed, instead of being proud of her, that the world saw her bra. This woman is a hero of the revolution and she's been silenced. In an article she wrote in 2012 entitled Why Do They Hate Us? published in Foreign Policy, Mona wrote, until the rage shifts from the oppressors in our presidential palaces to the oppressors on our streets and in our homes, our revolution has not even begun. So then I, I started thinking about my, my idea of the trifecta of misogyny. And the trifecta of misogyny is the misogyny that connects the state, the street, and the home together. Because after these sexual assaults that basically went by unpunished, I began to say, look, without feminism and without feminism at the core, this revolution will fail. And then some of my male comrades would say, ah, Mona, come on, we'll get to you. We have to release the political prisoners. We have to get rid of military rule. We have to fix the environment. We have to fix everything. And then we'll come for the women. As if women are some kind of special interest group that we're going to sit here and, you know, patiently wait. And then the revolution will remember us, despite the fact that we were part and parcel of the revolution. We had our arms broken for the revolution. We were raped for the revolution. We were killed for the revolution. We were disappeared for the revolution. But, but then we had to go home and cook and clean and be good girls and then wait for the men of the revolution to come and liberate us. I was like, fuck this shit. Are you kidding me? And that's why I came up with this paragraph that you're reading to me. Because I said, if you, the men of the revolution, believe that the state oppresses everyone, and it does, because the state oppresses men and women, you have to know that the state, together with the street, which is public space, and the home, which is private space, together oppress women. And that's the trifecta of misogyny. So unless we take the rage that the revolution directed at the state and directed at the street and at the home, our revolution is nothing. And now this is Mona now in 2020. Unless we dismantle the trifecta of misogyny, our revolution will remain what it is, which is a cisgender dick swinging contest in which one group of men fights another group of men. And if that's the revolution, then fuck.
that revolution. An Egyptian court sentenced five female social media influencers, Hanin Hossam, Mawada Aladham, and three others, to two years in jail on charges of, quote, violating public morals, end quote, over content posted to a video sharing app, TikTok. Just two days later, a court sentenced another young social media influencer, Manar Sami, to three years in prison over TikTok videos, deeming the clips in which she dances and lip syncs to popular songs to be, quote, inciting debauchery, end quote. In May, a shocking video came to light of a young woman sobbing, her face showing signs of battery. Menna Abdelaziz, just 17, said she had been gang raped by a group of young men. The authorities arrested the six alleged attackers, but Abdelaziz as well, and they were all charged with promoting debauchery. A group of mainly affluent women has spoken out against the government's crackdown on women online in what commentators have dubbed the resurgence of an Egyptian hashtag MeToo movement. So it's clear that along with the worsening of human rights violations, women too have had to deal with what the Al-Sisi's iron fist means for them specifically. Regardless, Mona is confident that the women who are struggling in Egypt have the tools necessary to continue the fight against the Egyptian patriarchy. These are mostly working class women, so this is now gender and class together. At the same time as they're imprisoning these women who are very popular on TikTok, the, uh, the CC regime is also um, either imprisoning or ignoring women who have exposed sexual violence. And they're using social media to do that. So this is a moment now where I, my advice to Egyptian women is to recognize that you now are the vanguard of the feminist revolution that we have been waiting for. Because now we can see how State Street and Home come together so well. And all revolutions, most definitely including Egypt's, will fail unless this feminist revolution is understood to be the heart of the revolution. So my advice for Egyptian women now is fight fight and fight. You will be hurt? Yes. You might go to prison? Yes. You will be killed? Maybe. But that's what happens in a revolution because there is no revolution that happens without a price because no one is going to come and liberate you. You have to liberate yourself. We can't protest on the streets in Egypt, but I, I consider social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, anything as basically virtual streets. Like, and so instead of marching on the, the streets of Cairo or Aswan or Alexandria, march on the virtual streets of social media because they are just as real, they are just as powerful and own this revolution because Egypt needs a feminist revolution. Soon after protests erupted in Tunisia, Yemen was one of the first Arab countries to follow as Yemenis took to the streets in capital Sana'a in January 2011. At the time, the country was ruled by Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had been the country's first president since North and South Yemen unified in 1990. The protesters' demands were clear. Al-Lat Yemeni human rights defender Afrah Nasser outlined them. During the protest, as the days and weeks went on, people started, and even myself, we started to really imagine a new, uh, prosper Yemen. 
where equal citizenship was guaranteed by the institution, by the constitution. And we started even to imagine that we can be a democratic country where we can see a new president, that this chance to rule the country could be democratically distributed um, among the people. Because when the uprising happened, I never really imagined that I will see a different president in Yemen. So mainly the economic grievances and the lack of democracy and the massive corruption uh, accusation against Ali Abdullah Saleh were the, were the driving force for protesters. Nasser rose to prominence for blogging Yemen's revolution, a medium she resorted to due to state censorship at the news outlet she worked for. The newspaper that I was working uh, with at that time, it was affiliated to Ali Abdullah Saleh. And they censored my reports inside the newspaper. So I thought, what is available for me to express myself and and continue reporting as I was doing in the newspaper. And I realized I have the blog, which I created even before the uprising. And then I just used it actively. And I I, I used other uh, social media tools. So I used all these platforms. I was on Twitter and Facebook and, and, and my blog. And I was reporting about what's going on, on on the ground. Despite the nationwide protests, Saleh clung on to power and deployed security forces to violently crack down on protesters. Scenes of bloodshed soon traveled across the country and made global headlines, prompting criticism of the regime and major pro-Saleh players to defect. And perhaps most notably, Major General Ali Mohsen al-Ahmar, an influential army commander, was among many to join the opposition. He had a huge role in how the uprising went from uh, like a pure youthful-led uh, uprising to the start of the counter-revolution. At that time, he was uh, basically the right hand of Ali Abdullah Saleh, and by him joining the uprising. It was like a stab in the back for Ali Abdullah Saleh. And that's when uh, it was the beginning uh, point for all the guerrilla war on the street of Sana'a and later on the civil war that we, we, uh, we saw, uh, we are seeing today. After mediation efforts by the Gulf Cooperation Council collapsed in May 2011, Saleh survived a rocket attack on his presidential palace a month later. He traveled to Saudi Arabia for urgent medical treatment, and after his 30-year run, Saleh agreed to hand over power to his vice president, Abdurrabbu Mansur Hadi, in return for immunity. Viewed by many as weaker than his predecessor, Hadi's new role was beset with challenges as he failed to unite a fractured Yemen and address the issues that fueled protests. Jihadist activity, as well as a separatist movement in the south of Yemen, plunged the country into further instability. The government's weakness was exploited by the Houthi movement, also known by its political name Ansar Allah, then an armed tribal militia group composed of Zaidi Shia Muslims from the north of the country. (laughs) 
In a turn of events, the Houthis joined forces with Saleh, despite years of waging wars against each other. In 2014, the newly formed allies united against Hadi. An unexpected attack forced Yemen's government out of the capital and into the south, where it established a temporary capital in the city of Aden. By then, the situation had unfolded into a full-blown civil war. The Houthis marched south in pursuit of Hadi, where a deadly battle to capture Aden took place. The Iran-backed Houthis' gains alerted Saudi Arabia. Riyadh and its regional allies quickly mobilized to put an end to the Houthi takeover and, in March 2015, began a controversial bombing campaign in Yemen. At the time, the Saudi-led coalition suggested a quick in-and-out mission to stop the Houthis and reinstate the government. But in December 2017, Saleh was assassinated by the Houthis, his foes turned allies, turned foes again. The Houthis established a solid hold over Sana'a and the coalition remains involved in Yemen's seemingly endless conflict. According to the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, the death toll in Yemen's war since 2015 has reached at least 100,000. The Yemen Data Project estimates at least 18,500 civilians were killed or injured in the conflict. Yemen was already considered the poorest country in the Arab world before the war. The UN's Refugee Agency reported more than 80% of the country's population requires some form of assistance, with 20 million facing food insecurity and an estimated 4 million people internally displaced. The country is also gripped by widespread famine. According to the UN, child malnutrition increased by 10% this year, leaving nearly 325,000 children under the age of 5 fighting to survive. Since 2016, Yemen has dealt with the largest cholera outbreak in the world, with at least 1 million confirmed cases since 2018. And this year, COVID-19 reached Yemen, a country with scarce access to sanitation and a healthcare system decimated by years of unrelenting warfare. Afrah Nasser currently works as Yemen researcher at Human Rights Watch and has extensively documented the humanitarian disaster in Yemen, which is considered the world's worst. And as the United Nations runs out of funds to sustain humanitarian operations in the country, Yemenis continue to rely on each other for support. It used to be difficult for Yemen uh, before, economically, politically, and so on. But it's never as heartbreaking and, and unbearable as it is today. The civil society uh, organization in Yemen as a community is actually quite young for Yemen's history. Today, with all the setbacks uh, because of the conflict, the civil society organization are struggling a lot. They're, they're fighting in so many different fronts. The political factions, some of them abuse them. Some of them try to take advantage of them. Some of them directly attack them. And still, for me, uh, Yemen is being held together today. It's thanks to these people, people working in uh, relief organizations, people working in media organizations, people working in, in, in volunteering. Some of them, because they, they see that there is no government that will deliver any services. So they do that themselves. I still have this in my mind from an interview I made with one volunteer in Aden during the peak of the COVID-19. During the pandemic, people were really scared to go even to hospitals. So some people were 
unfortunately were dying at home. So he was volunteering and, and mobilizing other, other volunteers and, and collecting money and distributing medicine and, and oxygen to people in their houses. It was heartwarming for me because this is what is keeping Yemen as it is. It's how people are showing solidarity to each other and trying to support each other with whatever means is available. So, but that does not dismiss that they are being attacked from the different political factions. And also, unfortunately, there is not, not uh, enough recognition to the Yemeni agency in, in, in managing or administrating things on the ground. So usually it's a, it's a foreign organization trying to do the work inside Yemen and getting funds for it, which is very, very sad. As Yemeni civilians face deteriorating living conditions, Nasser said the conflict that devastated their lives simultaneously benefited the parties that fueled it. The war profiteering has to stop because uh, one of the, the reasons why uh, the war is still continuing is that there are many parties benefiting from the continuation of the war. So as long as we're not cutting out these sources of income, the, 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 the way they profit from the war, even at the Saudi side, you know, because there is lack of transparency, actually, from that side. We don't know even who is benefiting. We don't know how the Saudi-led coalition function. Uh, there is no information about that. But what we know from uh, Saudi critics is that they are benefiting from uh, the Saudi-led military operation in Yemen. So with each airstrike, for example, it costs a lot of money. And then on the other side, for example, the Houthi authorities or the Yemeni internationally recognized government or other militias that are emerging from the conflict, they're all benefiting in one way or another. Take the Yemeni government, for example. Most of them are living in hotels in Riyadh. Uh, some of them have huge villas uh, already, both them in Turkey, Egypt. And a lot of people ask, where do you get all this money when there is a humanitarian disaster in Yemen? So there seems to be a lot of war profiteering going on. As long as that is not addressed, there is no intention from all these parties to find an end. Before different factions weaponized Yemen's uprising to serve their political and militant interests, Nasser remembers the revolution as one started by and for the people. The Arab Spring, when it arrived to Yemen, I think the most promising aspect of it was the participation of women in the uprising. Till today, I, I was and I'm still moved by the participation of so many women in the political debate in Yemen. And I hope the world really appreciates how millions of young people in Yemen did not favor tribalism and wanted to have a civil state like any other country. And women in, in particular have had a huge role in those protests. So I just wish that the world really understand how unique that was and how a historical moment it was for 
millions of young people in Yemen. As the war in Yemen shows no sign of abating, civilians around the country continue to suffer heavy losses, trauma, and heartbreak. But across cities and villages, and in conflict zones or displacement camps, there are Yemenis dreaming of the dignity and stability they deserve, much like the hopes that united them in protest almost a decade ago. This video from 2011 shows hundreds of people gathered in a square in the city of Hama in Syria, risking their lives for protesting against a ruler whose family has been in power for over 50 years. The people of this city remember Hafez Assad, Bashar al-Assad's father, all too well. In 1982, Hafez ordered security forces to kill thousands to crush a Muslim Brotherhood uprising, still remembered today as one of the most bloody massacres of the country's history. The protesters can be heard saying, Yalla Arhal, Ya Bashar, or Come on Bashar, time to leave. A song which became the most widespread chant against Bashar al-Assad, and which calls the Syrian president a liar and an ass. The credit for this chant was wrongly given to Ibrahim Khashoggi, who soon became a national hero after rumors flew around the country saying he had been murdered and his vocal cords had been ripped out. The real author, Abdul Raham Farhoud, remained in the shadows, worried what would happen to him if he were to take the credit. Although Syria was late to join the region's outbreak of popular uprisings, the clashes between Syrians and Bashar al-Assad's violent rule continues today. Due to the Assad regime's loyal support of a secret police force that is known for its brutality, the world was shocked to see Syrians unafraid to question his autocratic rule. Last month marked the 50 years of rule by the Assad family over Syria, which took power after a series of coups that followed the country's independence from France's colonial grip. Now, the country has been plagued by a decade of civil war that killed half a million people, and ravaged the economy. Assad and his forces have bombed people's homes, hospitals, and bakeries, as well as being accused of mounting chemical weapon attacks. When I go back with my memories to when I used to be back home, and now I don't have a home even, and when we started the idea of, okay, there are no news channels, there's no way that people can know what's going on. The TV is not telling people what is happening and near to zero people had access to the internet and the internet was uh, controlled by the regime. So no one knows what's literally going on in, in the next town or village or city at a time where people were being killed because they demonstrated massacres committed and no one knows what's going on. So we thought about, okay, let's fill this gap. How dangerous it is. It's so dangerous. Are we up so this idea, I think we were. Khaloud Helmi knows better than most what it means to sacrifice her life for the fight against the Assad family's iron fist. She yearned to contribute to the revolution that was ensuing around her, so she decided to join forces with fellow activists to launch a free and impartial newspaper providing news regarding the 2011 uprisings in Syria. No easy feat under Assad's regime.
when we were reporting. So when I used to work on my desktop, I was so worried that the regime might break in into my house and see what I am doing because they used to break into houses without getting permissions. What if they killed my mom and dad because I'm reporting? Does it worth it? Does it not? And uh, when we printed the newspaper, that was in secret. And then we throw it near a trash bin. Another person comes in, gets the bag, and then go directly home, distribute the, the issues, and then send them to each individual house. So that process was literally, I mean, we were crazy to do this because the, the checkpoints were in the streets. They used to search everyone, men and women. And I was about to be caught three times when I was carrying a bag full of the newspaper. And I don't know how I survived. Their mission not only posed a great danger to her, but especially to the people around her, which were abducted by the regime for their efforts. We only had one specialized professional journalist. He was our guide and mentor. But unfortunately, we lost Nabil in February 2012 when he was arrested. Uh, later on, other colleagues got detained, including my brother. End of 2012, we lost Mohammed Qureytim, who was a founding member as well. Early 2013, we lost Mohammed Shahadi, our reporter in Daria. And in March 2013, we lost Ahmed Shahadi as well. And that was our managing editor. And yeah, they disappeared. Uh, some of them were released, but mainly uh, the ones who got arrested. Um, we've heard in 2018 that they were killed under torture, some of them. While the rest, we don't know if they are alive or dead. We lost a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, we're still losing. We lost our home. We were displaced in 2012. The bravery of her and other activists seems unfathomable given the risks they were continuously facing. But speaking from Istanbul, Turkey, Khulud told me how easy it was to join the resistance when they saw how quickly other regimes were taken down by protesters in Tunisia, Egypt, and others. When Bin Ali has toppled down in, in, in eight days, we were like all super excited. Okay, we're going to topple the regime in a few days. And then Hosni Mubarak was down in 20 days and in Yemen in three months. So we were like super excited. And back then we were literally working super hard that we can achieve our dreams. So we resisted because the dream is going to come true very soon. But within three months, we started to lose so much people. Um, first of all, they, they kidnapped our close friends from the streets and they arrested them. I personally and my friends, we were not able to stay silent because we lost friends and we have to keep the legacy and we have to speak up in their behalf. Khouloud said she was hoping the international community would come to their aid since many states had spoken out against Assad's violence and in favour of the protesters defending themselves in the streets. But she quickly felt betrayed when no one came to their rescue. We assumed that if we continue our activism and we call for their freedom and our freedom as well as a full nation, we might be heard by the international community. 
but I was mistaken, unfortunately. There is a lie which is called human rights that we literally thought that it really exists and um, no one cares. So uh, every day by the passage of every single day, we were losing. So it escalated. So we not only lost friends because they got detained and we don't know if they are alive or dead, but we also started to lose friends when they are killed in front of our eyes. And then it's your hometown and then it's, it's relatives and then it's your home destroyed. And then it's something that you cannot ignore. So you have to keep the fight if it's not for yourself. Um, most of the time I feel I got so tired and I have lost a lot, but um, it's worth it to keep the legacy of those who were killed by the Assad regime. To speak up for those who are detained, including my brother, my, my cousins, and my close friends, uh, you can't count them because they are so many. So if, if they, they disappeared, they can't speak up. I don't know if they are alive or dead. And um, if I quit, I'm going to waste their, their lives and efforts. Um, I mean, to continue our dream. So what urges you is the high price that you have been paying, but also the belief in the collective good for everyone, for this, for Syria as a nation. Assad remains nominally in power with the help of Russia and Iran, all having taken prominent stakes in the conflict that has since destroyed much of the country and forced half of its population across borders or displaced them internally. Even with all this pain, Khulud tells me that she would never take back all her contribution to the resistance. I once read a novel by Khalid al-Husseini. It's called The Kite Runner. And one of the main characters, uh, he used to reiterate a sentence for you a thousand times over. That has been my motto since 2013 when I first read the novel. I have that feeling of, yeah, for that dream a thousand times over. The 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring will undoubtedly elicit strong emotions. Some will look back fondly on the elation they felt while protesting for a better nation, while others will reflect on the current state of their country with resentment and regret. The movement's legacy remains complex and contentious in the countries it has reached, but it has also served as an inspiration for regional neighbors. In recent years, a new series of anti-government protests erupted in Arab countries. Sudan launched demonstrations from December 2018, which resulted in President Omar al-Bashir being overthrown in April 2019. After Sudan's democratic transition began, protests continued in 2020 as citizens voiced their disapproval at the way it was being handled. In February 2019, hundreds of thousands of Algerians took to the streets days after President Abdelaziz Bouteflika announced he would run for a fifth consecutive term. Bouteflika resigned in April that year, but Algerians continued protesting the political elite and infringements of their freedoms well into 2020. 
Iraq's anti-government protests began in October 2019 and called for an end to the political system implemented after the U.S.-led invasion. The largely peaceful protests were met with violent repression by government forces, which used live rounds, tear gas, and water cannons against the crowds. Nearly 500 people were killed, and Prime Minister Adil Abdel Mahdi resigned in December 2019. His successor, Mustafa al-Kadhimi, set June 2021 as a date for early elections. October last year also saw protests erupt in Lebanon, as Lebanese officials across political and religious lines demonstrated against corruption and misrule at the hands of the political class. The demonstrations were met with violence by the state security apparatus, but triggered resignations from high-ranking politicians, including Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri. Lebanon's protests carried on in 2020 as the country's financial crisis deepened, and after a deadly blast shattered capital Beirut in August, Lebanese took their anger and grief back to the streets. A tragedy in Tunisia sparked the Arab Spring a decade ago. The country stands as a relative success compared to its neighbors, which suffered an Arab winter marked by conflict or renewed tyranny. Despite the common thread of disenchantment, civilians across the Arab world have not given up on their fights for substantial change, be it through civic engagement or peaceful protest. And ten years later, some still hope for the seeds planted by the Arab Spring to someday blossom as prosperous democracies. Thank you for listening to the New Arab Voices Arab Spring Special. This two-part series was produced by myself, Daniel Hejaji, and my colleague, Gaia Karamatsa. We'll be taking a hiatus over the holidays, but we'll return in 2021. In the meantime, don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in for Season 1, and we'll see you next year.